Luke chapter 2. As we come into this uh, passage, um, we now find that this is the continuation of uh, the declaration of who Jesus is. Earlier um, in the in the gospel, we just saw in the previous section, um, beginning in in verse eight, that there is a proclamation of what God has accomplished, what God has accomplished um, for his people. And he reveals this by an angel to a group of shepherds, to the common man, to the everyday uh, person. He brings this message to them so that they might understand um, that this is applicable to them, that Jesus comes for the individual for the everyday person that you need not be royalty to receive him. You need not be, uh, you know, the, the most prominent members of society, but that this is applicable even to the simplest of person. And so we find here that this word goes out to the shepherds and they go to discover, they go to see about uh, Jesus and to see if these things are true. And they rush off um, the scriptures tell us in haste to go see uh, Jesus there in the manger. And they go and they find uh, Jesus there in the manger, just as the angel had said. Um, and then they go and in turn begin to tell others what they have seen, what they have heard, what they've witnessed, what they have um, experienced there. And the people who hear it are impacted. They have a response. They have an opportunity to encounter uh, the the newborn king. They have an opportunity to encounter the claims that are made about this child. And we find that the group of people who hear these things, uh, they wonder at them. They are considering them. And we're told even that Mary, she treasures these things up, pondering them in her heart. She's, she's figuring these things out. She's trying to put together the pieces of the puzzle. And she doesn't have the complete picture, but she's doing her best to understand based on what she understands from the angel telling her what would happen on what the shepherds have come and told her. She's putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And others are trying to do the same as well. But now as we come to the text this morning, we find that uh, that they get a, a, a more complete picture of what is happening here, what's going on in the life of their child and what the intentions are for Jesus. And this comes about not just as um, another visitation here, but it comes about in their uh, regular observance of the law, that they continue to try to obey God, even after they've experienced uh, these wonderful things, even after they've experienced these uh, circumstances that have never happened before. They don't say, we're a special case. They don't say, we're going to do our own thing now. They don't come and say, we're outside of the law and we can, you know, kind of do whatever we want. But rather they said, we are going to continue to obey God. We are going to honor him as best as we know how. And so in doing so, um, they are continuing to participate as members of Israel, uh, to observe the law as outlined in the scriptures and wanting to uh, do the best that they can there to honor God with their lives and in obedience to his law. 
And, and, and so um, they are walking in his statutes. And Luke notes for us the particular process here by um, that they go through, uh, namely this cleansing, um, this ceremony of purification for Mary. If you look at verse 22, he picks up and he says this, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So two things are happening there. One, they are bringing Jesus to dedicate him to the Lord. Uh, they are also going to observe this ceremony of purification. Now, uh, the, the law ha would have required that after the birth of this child, the mother would have been regarded as being unclean for seven days and then would have uh, kind of been uh, remaining there at home for a continuing uh, portion of time until the 40th uh, day had gone by. And then they would have offered a purification sacrifice there uh, to the Lord. And so this is all outlined in Leviticus chapter 12, uh, but this necessitated a journey to Jerusalem because the, the uh, ceremony had to um, take place uh, at this particular location, um, at the tent of meeting or at this place, uh, you know, the temple. And so uh, Luke tells us that the, the amount of days have gone by, they've observed the days uh, for this process and they head to Jerusalem to present uh, Jesus to the Lord. And we're told in verse 23 that they come and they bring their sacrifice. And as they are observing the this ceremony of purification, as they are trying to dedicate Jesus to the Lord, uh, they we also find that they are um, participating in this process of the redemption of the firstborn. And so they bring these uh, sacrifices um, as well uh, for these various ceremonies. Uh, Luke records for us in verse 23, he says, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now there, it doesn't, when it means holy to the Lord, it's not speaking of uh, it being a um, a right of, or, or an intention of being blameless, but rather uh, the word holy means to be separated, to be consecrated, to be other, to be separated out. Uh, and so uh, it's remarking there upon this particular um, additional uh, uh, ceremony that they would have participated in. But regardless of, of that, we get the additional information about what Mary and Joseph bring for their time at the temple. They offer, we're told in verse 24, a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, uh, ordinarily, uh, it's outlined in Leviticus chapter 12 that you were supposed to bring a lamb for the burnt offering uh, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for the sin offering. Uh, in, in the case of uh, these individuals not being able to afford a lamb, you were permitted to bring a pair of turtle doves or a pair of pigeons. So instead of ha having to pay for a lamb, 
you would also just say, okay, well, we're going to bring one extra bird here. And so they uh, were permitted to bring this, uh, you know, particular um, additional bird, which, which tells us, which gives us some insight that this is kind of the state that they are in. They are not a particularly well-off couple. Um, this doesn't necessarily mean that they are, um, you know, living in poverty, but rather that they, they're, you know, a, a humble people, just, you know, regular working class people. If you recall, Joseph um, is a carpenter. So he has a way of income. He is providing for his family, but he's just kind of a, a regular Joe. He's just got his, his uh, process that he's working through trying to take care of his family and he can't afford to have, uh, you know, a lamb. And so he brings uh, his pair of birds, one uh, for the burnt sacrifice and one uh, for the, for the sin offering. And uh, this would have been, um, this would have been, you know, Luke's way of informing us, not only historically what has happened, but also continuing that thread that, that the gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus Christ is for all people, that this isn't to just the well-off people. This isn't for people who can really afford it, but rather this is again, for the everyday person, that um, this is to the common man, that we are all able to uh, participate in the relationship with God, not on the basis of our wealth, but on the generosity of our hearts, that we want to offer what we have to the Lord. And so um, the sacrifice that is brought forth here, this offering is uh, the less expensive one. And as they bring this, um, these sacrifices here for the, uh, the ceremony for Mary's uh, purification process, we find that Jesus is also dedicated to the Lord, that he's consecrated here uh, as the firstborn. Uh, recall uh, earlier in verse 23, we see that uh, it's a citation here from Exodus chapter 13, where we get the original um, calling out of the firstborn, the consecration of the firstborn. Uh, Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, the Lord speaking says this uh, to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So in the book of Exodus, this is connected to what God had done in the, um, in the killing of the firstborn there as the final plague. Uh, he had decreed also that uh, the firstborn sons of all belonged to him. And, and, and in Israel, this group of people was initially designed to form the priestly class. Like the, the firstborn son of every household was supposed to be uh, dedicated to him so that they might be set aside to serve uh, in the tabernacle. 
And then later, uh, as the, the tribes of Israel are formed, uh, he begins to set aside the tribe of Levi to serve as priests. And then at that point, uh, there are instructions given where the parents are permitted to reclaim uh, or, or in the terms of the scriptures, to redeem their firstborn son by uh, a payment that it be- the firstborn belongs to God by right, but yet uh, they have the opportunity to uh, redeem this child from the Lord uh, for a offering to him. And so by... Um, by default, the firstborn belongs to God. He has the claim, the right on on the firstborn. And so uh, Mary and Joseph here were going through this process uh, to make this offering. And so as they make their way into the temple, as they're heading up into there, they are stopped. There's a, a particular man who sees them and calls them out. Uh, look at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem, whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So, there... Uh, Mary and Joseph are there making their way into the, into the temple. They're heading up uh, onto the temple mount. And as they are doing this, uh, Luke tells us of a man called Simeon. Uh, he is a man who is described as being righteous and devout. He's one of this uh, a, a member of the Jews who was uh, waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And we're explicitly told here uh, that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel and that the Holy Spirit was upon him. So number one, what in the world does the consolation of Israel mean? What is that about? Um, What we find here is that the consolation of Israel is another way a shorthand uh, way of essentially saying Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. Uh, That's kind of the the long and short way for you to to remember in your mind. But when he, when it's said here, when when, uh, Simeon is thinking of it, he's referencing in his mind the words that are mentioned all the way back in the book of Isaiah. There's a section in the book of Isaiah um, that kind of, teases out this idea of uh, the consolation of Israel, and it it overlaps it um, with this servant figure who would come uh, and and, and serve the Lord and and would suffer. Um, But we find here that the consolation of Israel is this, this section that kind of happens over the the period of Isaiah chapter 40 all the way to about um, verse six, or excuse me, to chapter 66. Uh, It's kind of a repetition here. And it's it's tricky to find um, often because uh, the verbiage is 
is used a little bit differently, particularly um, in in like the phrasing of some of these things. So the consolation to console someone would be the same idea as comforting someone or to comfort someone would be to kind of be meeting their needs to come alongside them to take care of them that you are meeting them exactly where they are at that you're coming to them in their place of difficulty and you are coming to take care of them now uh and, and so a, a synonym for uh, for consolation throughout the book of Isaiah is the word comfort. And so the first place that you see this begin to um, pop up is in the very first words of Isaiah chapter 40. This is this idea of God comforting his people by delivering them. And he'll continue to repeat this all throughout this section, all the way from chapter 40, all through the way through um through about chapter 66. So I'm going to just give you kind of the first and last here uh, to, to give you some um, understanding into the range of this. First, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, it opens with these simple words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Right? So there's this address that is going forth at this time to comfort God's people to bring this word to them. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So there's this idea here that's happening here that one, war needs to be dealt with, right? There, there needs, there's a, a cry for peace. There's Sin has to be pardoned. How does that happen? Right? Through the consolation of Israel, the comforter of Israel, right? That, that there's judgment that happens, double for all her sins. This happens through a reigning king, a ruling judge. And so just in the very first words of uh, Isaiah chapter 40, we get this uh, call out immediately, remarking upon uh, the consolation of Israel. As you make your way through you, uh, the book, you begin to see this figure emerge of uh, the suffering servant. But let's fast forward to uh, chapter 66 of the book of Isaiah, and we read this in verse 13. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So there's this idea here of consolation, of care uh, that's happening. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall be consoled in Jerusalem. And so when, when uh, Simeon is making these remarks in Jerusalem, the, the entire historicity of Isaiah 40 through 66 is in his mind. This is where he's speaking from. And remember, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what he's saying here is that the time of restoration is expected to come about through this Messiah figure that's spoken of here, the consolation of Israel, the consoler of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 66, the one who will deal with uh, the wars that are happening, the one who will deal, who will bring peace, the one who will pardon sin, the one who will reign as judge and ruler. And so we find that this is 
the desire, the deepest desire of this uh, man called Simeon. And we're told here that he desired to see the Messiah so deeply uh, that uh, the Lord had revealed to him, verse uh, 26, by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It was revealed to him that he would see the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus, and that he would not die until this happened. And so he comes with this longing, with this expectation to the temple in Jerusalem this day. And we find in verse 27, he's in the spirit, he's uh, relying on God. And as the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, uh, according to the custom of the law, he took him up, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So Mary and Joseph are heading into the temple to dedicate their firstborn according to the law. And Simeon just like walks right up to them and scoops up Jesus. And he's like, here he is. He's got him. Right? There's no like exchange that hap- that's happens. He just like totally swipes him and uh, grabs him and uh, holds him up and blesses the Lord. He responds to the Lord and, and praise and thanksgiving. And, and, and he he releases these words. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And so at this moment, he's expressing this gratitude to God, both because uh, he has, it's confirmed to him that he uh, is uh, witnessing the fulfillment of God's promise, that he is Uh, seeing that God is going to be faithful to his word, right? That's why he says here, according to your word. It's Simeon who's filled with the Holy Spirit, who sees Jesus, who says, this is it. This is God keeping his word. And now, right? And now I know that God is faithful and true and that he will bring about Israel's uh, redemption. Now, you know that Simeon like really meant this because you don't really like want to hasten your death if you know you're not going to die until something's for sure, right? But he's like, I'm for sure going to die now because this is definitely it, right? That's not something that's like a real appealing sort of thing. Like, right, you could, you, you might want to like tiptoe into that a little bit skeptical, like this might be it, but I guess we'll see if I die or not. No, he was sure. He knew right away, like, this is it. The Holy Spirit's at work. This is happening. I'm definitely going to die now. <laughs> like he, he was, he was dead set on it. He understood. He says, you are letting your servant depart in peace, right? And when you have the confirmation of the word of God, when you trust God's word, it brings about peace to your heart. You don't have to second guess it. You don't have to wonder, is this, is God going to keep his word? Is it true? Right? You don't have to live in that state of anxiety or, or, or worry. Right? And a lot of times, the reason that we begin to live in those, uh, those seasons of anxiety or worry is because we are unfaithful, not because God is unfaithful. It's because we might not keep our word or because we might go do something stupid. But God will keep his word. 
He will make a way for us to obey him, to walk with him every single day, every single moment. He has committed to this. And so we can be assured that when God has given us his word, when he has spoken to us, that this allows us to be at peace. Because when we trust his word, we're fundamentally saying that you are God and that your word is faithful and true and that we're not. And whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, is fine by us. Because you're in charge. We're not in charge. And this is what happens with Simeon here. He says, I'm going to die in peace because God has kept his word. He has seen God's salvation. He has witnessed what God will do, that he has prepared in the presence of all people. He's like, this is about to go down and everyone's going to see it, that God will indeed keep his word. This is going to come to pass. This will be witnessed by all. Now, He, he elaborates even further in verse 32, and he says that this isn't just for Israel. But for the first time in the book of Luke, he says that Jesus will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That Jesus will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. For the first time in the gospel of Luke, we find now that there is an inclusion of the nations that are outside of Israel. And these references, uh, these references help fill in the bit of the the um, gaps in our understanding and knowledge up to this point, right? That that this is applicable to all people, because as Simeon states this, remember he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's essentially reaching back into one of the chapters in that section of Isaiah forty to chapter sixty six. He pulls out a section explicitly from uh, Isaiah 42, verse 6, which says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Right. So Simeon's reaching back into his knowledge set by the Holy Spirit and saying, this is the application here of Isaiah 42, verse 6, that Jesus is a light for the nations, that he isn't merely only like for the Jews, he isn't merely for Israel, but is for the redemption of all people, that he will bring about this work to all people. And this echoes the many places in the Old Testament that speak about God's desire to accomplish this. One other spot Um, that perhaps he had in mind was Psalm 98, verse uh, 2 and 3. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Again, in Isaiah chapter 49, still in that little window there, uh, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, we read, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. He's like, that's not enough. I can do more. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach out to the end of the earth. So in Psalm 98, in Isaiah 49, we have this 
uh, this repetition of God wanting his intention to bring his salvation to the nations. And so it's described here as he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Jesus is uh, both for uh, the Jews and the Gentiles, that he would be on display for all people. And then at the end of this entire like hijacking of Mary and Joseph's plans, after he finishes this outburst of praise to the Lord for the Messiah and that now he's going to get to die, uh, he turns and he brings his blessing upon uh, the parents. And, and also, you know, a bit of a, a sorrowful note, uh, but he speaks to Mary kind of prophetically of what would happen. Look at verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and the sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that many thoughts Oh, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Simeon gets this opportunity. He speaks now to Mary and Joseph and blesses them. But then he begins to unpack uh, the work of Jesus for, uh, for Mary, that she gets some further understanding about what will indeed happen. And uh, Simeon here speaks of three sections first of, uh, of what Jesus will accomplish, that many will rise and many will fall. Second, that he will act as a sign um, and that will have consequences for Mary. Uh, and third, about how he will parse the inward motives of others. So first, let's look at uh, the rise and fall. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Now, here again, Simeon reaches back into the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Right, So many will fall, many will rise as the result of Christ. There are those who are arrogant, those who are self-righteous, those who are unrepentant, those who are unbelieving of the works of Christ and what he said he is, and they would fall and experience uh, the punishment as the result. But then there are those who will humble themselves, those who will come down uh, to the river and will repent of their sins, and they will recognize Jesus as uh, the Messiah, as the king, and they will in turn rise and they will be blessed. And this is a fact that will happen through the work of Jesus, right? Because what you begin to think as you understand Jesus as a king is you just think, oh, everyone's just going to be entirely on board because he's going to give them exactly what they want as the king is going to overthrow Rome, he's going to come to the place where he is uh, conquering these uh, oppressing nations and, and that are occupying them. And they're going to get what 
what they want, but that's not what Jesus is here for. And as a result, uh, his message is going to cause many to, to fall because they will not be happy about it, that they will be arrogant and unrepentant. And, and we're told here that he will act as a sign. He's a sign that is opposed. He's going to be a sign that will be spoken against. Uh, there's his, his work on earth will bring about division. His work on earth is uh, a message of repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so this is a call for those who hear it to turn from their own ways and to turn and become members of his kingdom. And so he comes to uh, bring about a rebuke to sin, to unholiness, uh, to, to bridge a gap between God and man. And, uh, and there are many who will be opposed to that message. And the consequences of that message will fall to, uh, will be experienced by Mary is what Simeon outlines for her. He tells her that she's going to suffer just this great anguish at the treatment of Jesus, right? He's, he's looking into the future and knowing that Jesus will indeed suffer greatly at the cross. And Mary will, will see her own son experiencing uh, this great, the, like the most difficult moment in human history that Mary will be a witness to this. And so he tells her a sword will pierce through your own soul also that you're going to experience this difficulty, this hardship uh, that perhaps you're, you're not aware of, right? So she, he's telling her that you can expect these things. You can be aware of these things. You can be preparing yourself for these things. And the reason for this, the reason that these things come about, we're told, is so that uh, Jesus might parse what is in the heart of man. We're told here so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus doesn't leave a way for you to be indifferent about him. The way in which you interact with the, with the Savior, with the King, with the Messiah, is a test. It's a way of proving out what are your inward motives, your inward heart motives. Where does your, your, your heart and your mind uh, go? Do you go to resist him? as the king and to try to get your own way? Do you go to try to put up walls and to fight against him? Or do you understand that he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise and worship because of what he has done for us, what he has done on our behalf? How quick are we to, to come to him when we sin? How quick are we uh, to uh, recognize him each morning when we wake up? and to uh, begin our conversation of prayer with him, to dig into his word, to fill our minds and our hearts with uh, songs of praise and worship, to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How quick are we to make melody in our hearts unto the Lord, right? This is a test of the inward thoughts and motives of the heart. Right? Because it's easy for us to be distracted. It's easy for us to be a people who are, who are scattered. But we've got to be disciplined in our approach. We've got to be disciplined in recognizing that he is the king because that shapes every single aspect of our day, of what he's, he, where he's leading us and where we're going and how we're responding. 
Our day doesn't belong to us. Our moments don't belong to us. We are subjects of the king. And we follow him wherever he leads us. And we follow him together. And so it's not our will, but it's his will. How can we follow him? And we're told here that the work of Christ, it does it by default. It it causes many hearts to be revealed because you can't not respond to him. You're, you're either going to recognize him as king or you're going to be irritated by that message and you're going to go to war with him. I'll tell you, he's undefeated, so you don't want to go to war with him. Like He will not lose, right? So you better figure out how to embrace the goodness of what he intends for you because his goodness is better than like anything that you could ever think of. And he desires to give you life and life abundantly. Now, as Simeon brings this word to her, the Lord brings a double confirmation by letting this other girl come up and she confirms the message. So if it wasn't like crazy enough that Simeon just walks up and he's just like, yo, let me snatch your baby and like start saying all this stuff. All of a sudden, as that's happening, uh, we're told another woman, she pops up and she, she does like the same thing. Verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So she's there. She, uh, the Simeon and Mary and Joseph and Jesus are just chilling there, going through this process. And uh, this woman, Anna, who's described as a prophetess, she's, uh, she's listed as a faithful uh, member of Israel who's also waiting for the coming of the Messiah. She's like this counterpart to Simeon, uh, the female version of Simeon. And Luke goes on to list her qualifications, and he mentions her faithfulness. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She's a member of the tribe of, of Asher. Uh, she's a, a member of the 10 tribes that are, are, are led into captivity by the Assyrians. Uh, she's, she's like, you know, very old at this point. We're, we're told that she's advanced in years. And she pops up out of nowhere and she finds Jesus um, there also. She's, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit, and she's uh, interjects herself into the situation, and she begins to give thanks to the Lord for this promised Redeemer as well. And she speaks uh, not only to this group of people, but all who are around, the people who are gathering. Uh, she begins to, to declare that Jesus is the redemption of Israel, that he is the one who, if you're expecting the redemption of Israel, the rescue of Israel, if you're expecting the consolation of Israel, that he will indeed be the one who will accomplish this. She brings this about uh, by proclaiming this message, by going and sharing about what God will indeed do. And so Luke mentions uh, her involvement here uh, to show again that this is a double confirmation, but also to show that this uh, message belongs to all mankind, right? We've got a, 
this guy Simeon who's who, who's operating in the kind of this prophetic role. Then we've got this woman uh, Anna who's operating in, as a prophetess. So two people who are obedient to the Lord. And the message here is that if you want to, if you're expecting God to work, he's going to work. If you want to obey him, he's going to meet you where you're at. He's covered, uh, he's covered mankind. He's covered uh, the totality of God's rule, his kingdom coming. He's uh, covered the inclusion of shepherds. Uh, he's covered uh, who, were, who were kind of the more common man at that time. He's covered now uh, the inclusion of women into this who would not have held a prominent um, place in society at this time. And he's like, look, like she's showing up too. Everyone's getting in on this because the message is for all people. It's about all people being brought into uh, the household of faith. Jesus is a revelation for the Jews and for the Gentiles, a light to the nations. Paul puts it uh, this way in Galatians chapter four. When the fullness of time had come, God had sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, right? This is exactly what's being laid out here. Jesus is, is born. He's been sent forth to accomplish this. He's born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. He comes in to redeem us because we belonged to the law. We couldn't get out from under it so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Uh, <clears throat> and if a son, then an heir through God. So we're told, Paul tells us, that because Jesus was faithful to be redeemed, because he was the firstborn, because he was able to come and keep the law, then we are able to be members of the household of faith. That we are able to be members of this new humanity. That he has made a way for us to become uh, members of the household of faith. That, uh, and we are heirs now with, uh, with Christ. Finally, we finish with these words from Romans chapter 8. In verse 16, Paul writes similarly to what he had recorded there in the book of Galatians. And he tells us this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, what happens here is that we are assured, according to the word of God, that we are his children. That his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are his children. And by implication, if we are his children, then we are heirs that we receive all of the rights and privileges of belonging to the king, right? And we're fellow heirs with Christ, that we belong to his family and we get to be the recipients of the entirety of this inheritance, the entirety of it. You see, although Mary and Joseph come this day, 
to the to the temple and they are just a common everyday people they show up with their two turtle doves or their two young pigeons to offer their sacrifice of purification to be made clean although they show up this day uh you know with a meager offering they don't show up with uh what was as prescribed in the book of Leviticus, it's, it's noteworthy to notice that it seems part of the reason they don't have that, they don't have that is because one, they weren't, the, the Lord was, was reserving, was, was preserving his sacrifice of his lamb for Mary's uncleanness at the cross. When he would say, Look, I know you can't afford the lamb. I brought the lamb. And the lamb here is at the cross and the sword's going to pierce you through Mary and he's going the sword will pierce Jesus through for your uncleanness. For what you for how you have fallen short. So that Jesus might be a light to the nations, that he might be a light to the to the Gentiles, that he, it might be seen that God's kindness and goodness is vast. It's great. It's wonderful. And that God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come, come to repentance. He is willing that he would be the, the, he would be willing to give his own firstborn so that we might have redemption through his own firstborn. That we might be the first fruits of the spirit as he gives up his own firstborn at the cross. And so God was willing to, send his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us so that we might receive adoption, so that we might be born unto him. So he allows us to come, not with our great offering. He allows us to come forward to him, not with having prepared our, ourselves or making ourselves clean, but knowing that we come with less than our two young pigeons and our two young turtle doves because he's already paid with his own lamb. He's already paid in his own way. He's already made the way for us to have this opportunity to enter into his kingdom. He's preserved his own lamb for his own purposes so that he might lay down his own life for our sake, that we might become his children. You see, for Israel, they weren't aware that all the things that were spoken of in Isaiah 40 through verse chapter 66 were going to be done by like God himself. Like, sure, maybe God's going to raise up some like human figure who's going to do this. But it was inconceivable that God himself would be that figure. There wasn't an understanding that the suffering servant would be God, that, it, that he would do this work himself, but it's the only way. It's why he comes to us on this day in Jerusalem as the consolation of Israel, because we need that comforting. We need that consoling. We need that restoration. We need that redemption, and it can only happen through his own blood. And so we rejoice in that. We bless the Lord as Simeon did, knowing that as we 
go through life, whether we live or whether we die, we are at peace with God because of his work. And we might be able to depart in peace because God has kept his word. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness. We're thankful for your rule and reign over our lives, and we rejoice in you. And we ask that you would <clears throat> remind us of that great sacrifice that you made, um, of the cross. And Lord, you don't allow us to sit in that place of indifference towards you. And so Lord, we want to acknowledge you um, as our savior as our Redeemer, as our King. And so, Lord, would you be glorified as we endeavor to do so each day? Would you empower us by your Holy Spirit so that we might recognize you each day? Lord, we, uh, I think we so identify with the Apostle Paul when he said that there are things that he does that he doesn't want to do but the things that he wants to do that 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 do glorify you he finds difficult to do it's hard and so Lord, we need your empowering we know that we um we can't serve you apart from the empowering of your holy spirit and so help us we ask for help we ask for um that strengthening so that we might honor you in every way and so, Lord, be glorified as we, um, as we respond now, as we respond to the sermon, the proclamation that you are um, a ruling king, and that you uh, intend the very best for us. We're so thankful for your faithfulness, Jesus. Be glorified in your church. We love you. Amen.